When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. A lot of what we try to do on How Do We Fix It is just to ask good questions and find thoughtful guests who are saying things that aren't always being said elsewhere. They're looking at the world in a slightly different way than what you might see every day on CNN or MSNBC or, for that matter, Fox News. We're skeptics, Jim, suspicious of dogma and slogans. And that's why we looked for someone this week at this time who could talk about race from a personal, a practical, and also an original viewpoint. Race, protests, and police. Coleman Hughes. One thing I'm very sensitive to is having this whole conversation without getting the cops' point of view. You know, imagine if we were having this whole conversation without any black people speaking. I would just want to get a reality check from a typical cop who tells me, well, actually, here are the five things you don't know about what it's like to be a policeman. Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How, how do, do we, we fix, fix it? it? How do we fix it? We've all been surprised by the events of the past few weeks, and I think they forced all of us, or, or hopefully they have, to think afresh about racism, policing, and the nature of power. So many reforms are needed, and we wanted to ask questions in a curious and, and somewhat humble way, because I don't think we have the answers. Coleman Hughes first got on my radar I, probably two or three years ago when I started reading these brilliant essays he was writing in the online magazine Quillette. And I was thinking, like, who is this guy? I mean, how, how come I haven't heard of him? Well, the reason I hadn't heard of him was he was an undergraduate at Columbia University. He was just starting his career as what we used to call a public intellectual. Since then, his writing has appeared in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and other outlets. He's also just been named a fellow at the Manhattan Institute Think Tank, which we often work with. Coleman Hughes also hosts the podcast Conversations with Coleman, which is definitely worth a listen. And he's just graduated from Columbia with a degree in philosophy. Uh, Coleman joins us from Washington, D.C. Coleman, welcome to How Do We Fix It? Glad to be here. Coleman, we're in the midst of this painful national conversation and turmoil about race and the role of the police. You've been out at the Black Lives Matter protests. What have you seen out there? Well, one thing I see is the effect that social media has had on our perception of everything. And this goes as much for the protesters as the police. Uh, from personal experience attending them 
two in New York and one in, here in DC, 99.9% .9 of the people there are committed to nonviolence. Also, 99.9% .9 of the cops are doing their jobs to a T perfectly well, not abusing anyone. But the 0.1% of each, that's what we're constantly fed on our Twitter feeds and on Instagram. So it creates the impression on both sides, depending on you know whether you have a more right-wing or left-wing newsfeed, that there is widespread chaos, when in fact, it's minimal. The problem is that there's so much protesting happening that if one in a thousand people is a nut, at the end of a single day, you'll get a lot of nuts destroying and looting businesses, and, and likewise with the police. What do you see as the goal of the protests? Um, see, that's a good question. They are not like the civil rights movement in the sense that they had a very specific discrete goal that could be written down on a single sheet of paper and interpreted the same by everyone. Uh, when you go to these protests, you see you see people holding signs with totally reasonable police reforms, like you know every cop wearing a body cam. You see other people holding signs like abolish the white moderate, whatever the hell that means, and defund the police and all these like very sort of very bad ideas. You know, there's so many people at these protests and it's, there's no leader, which means that everyone is going into it with their own sense of what their goal is. There's a good, I would say one in 20, one in 30 protesters that every time they pass a cop, they give him the middle finger, call him a pig, almost try to provoke him. Um, the majority of the protesters are not like that. They do think the police are racist. That's probably the one unifying theme. And they think that the litany of names of black unarmed people that have been killed since roughly Trayvon Martin in 2012, they think that they were all killed because of their race. Those are the two beliefs that basically everyone holds. And after that, you know, everyone has their own vision of where they want to take things. Have you been surprised and maybe impressed by the diversity of the crowds at these protests, the range of different types of people? I can't say I was surprised necessarily, but it was, yeah, it was a kind of natural racial and gender and sexual diversity. You know, it clearly wasn't forced. It's just every protest I've been to has been every color under the rainbow. You see people holding signs like Jews for you know, Jews for black lives or Hispanics for black lives. Those are fairly common. Asians for black lives. So you see all that kind of stuff in a way is, is heartening. I mean, that, that does make it different than the black power movement, at least, which many of the people marching have that as their model. You've said black lives matter is based on a half truth. Mm. What do you mean by that? So what's true about it is that uh, the police are quicker to rough up black and Hispanic suspects on average. At least that's what the, the best studies have shown. They're right that police departments are rife with corruption to the point where we don't even use that word mentally to describe it anymore when a cop lies to protect his own. You know, in any other context, that's that's just corruption. But that's the status quo. And we haven't figured out a way to reliably get around that problem. But 
if you were to get rid of all the bad apples, you would see many of the problems still remaining, which suggests that there are legal reforms that need to be made, like universal body cam, maybe ending qualified immunity is a more debatable one, and I can see both sides of it. What they're wrong about is, is their basic fundamental premise, the most animating idea, which is that racist cops are killing black people. Um, now that's something I, I used to believe myself when, when I when back in 2012, I was I was one year younger than Trayvon Martin when he died. And like a lot of black men, I saw myself in him and I felt I felt like he could have been me. And I was the same age as Michael Brown when he was killed in Ferguson in 2014. Um, and I felt that, you know, that pain of empathy and there, you know, but for the grace of God goes I. But what has changed my mind really are stories and data. The stories I'm talking about are just stories of unarmed white people getting killed in precisely the same circumstances. Could, could I could I ask you about that? There's a case from Dallas, wasn't there, several years ago, of an unarmed uh, white person being brutalized by police, and I believe he died at the hands of police. Uh, but that case didn't get much coverage, did it? No, Tony Timpa, he was killed by um, some Dallas police officers. He actually called the cops on himself, I believe. Uh, cops came, they eventually pin him to the ground, uh, face down, just like George Floyd. Instead of the knee being on his neck, the knee was on his upper back, which um, didn't end up making much of a difference because he was pinned there for 13 minutes and he died a certain number of minutes into that 13. Um, and like the whole time whimpering, begging for his life. Uh, and the cops are cracking jokes about it the whole time. They're saying, Tony, wake up. It's time to go to school. Little do they know they've killed him. Um, it's, it's every bit as brutal as, as the George Floyd video. And that video remained inaccessible for three years until a, a federal judge made it accessible to the public in 2019. And it didn't go viral. It didn't provoke any riots or protests. And the charges initially brought against the officers involved were later dropped. And I want to be careful because Tony Timpa is not some outlier. I'm not cherry picking the one guy who's been killed by the cops. There are dozens and dozens of these every year that are every bit as tragic as the black people who get killed by the cops. You were you were going to mention the, the data that it's not clear that the police are openly racist in, in how they deal with uh, most cases in, right. involving African-Americans. Right. So, you know, I, I could list off 30 names of white people who, who've gotten shot by the police and you might come back and say, well, yeah, yeah. But if you look at the numbers, black people are 14 percent of the total American population. But in the past five years, they've comprised 33 or 35 percent of unarmed American killed by the cops. And by way of reply, I would say, you know, if you could simply prove a bias by the distance between the population share and the share in some other place, you could find that there's a huge anti-male bias in police shootings because men are 50% of the population, but over 90% of those who, who get shot. So there have been a few really careful studies that have tried to control for every confounding variable. Um, I'm aware of four of these studies and all of them have found either 
no racial bias in deadly shootings or a kind of reverse racial bias in deadly shootings. To be clear, these studies have found anti-Black racial biases in other areas, such as the police likelihood to go hands on a suspect tends to be much higher if that suspect is Black or Hispanic. But if you're talking about the effect of skin color on a cop's decision to pull the trigger, there simply isn't one to be found so far as the, the research currently stands. You've been accused of minimizing the existence of racism. How do you respond to that? Um, you know, I, it's hard for me to respond without the without a, a more fleshed out argument being made. So is the, is the argument that I'm wrong about deadly shootings? Because I would I, I would wager that I'm not. I would bet money that I'm not. Um, is it that I'm you know, ignoring the existence of racism in other places. I don't think so because, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very quick to acknowledge that there is racial bias in the police going hands on a suspect. And that has a huge psychological effect on primarily young black and Hispanic men. There's a whole generation who was stopped and stopped and frisked in New York that, you know, you know, 90, Plus percent of these people had nothing on them, but they fit the profile because they were black and Hispanic young men and they became bitter towards the cops. Absolutely understandably, because it's humiliated to be roughed up by the cops. And that's a humiliation that's been disproportionately borne by the black community and the Hispanic community. And it should be noted the male community. Um, all of that matters in terms of police, civilian trust, the likelihood of people wanting to talk to police when they have evidence that could solve a homicide case, for example. And so all of that matters. And it is still separate from the question of whether racist cops are killing black people. Have you had those kinds of experiences in your life? Have you had racist interactions with, with authorities? Uh, yeah. I mean, I've had I've had a few experiences where I was virtually certain that I was being treated worse because I was black. Um, I don't think I've had it as bad as many other, you know, I'm, I'm small. I kind of, I can talk in a way so as to put a cop off his guard, whereas a lot of black men, they have a little bit more of a chip on their shoulder as, as, as many men throughout history have had. Um, they're the ones that are, are going to have more of those experiences. Do you think that the cops, the police, uh, treat uh, poor people worse than people who are likely to be perceived as professionals or middle class? Uh, one little personal anecdote from this, my son has been taking part in protests, and he has noticed a big difference between the behavior of the police in Manhattan uh, and uh, Brooklyn and the Bronx by comparison, yeah. that people are more likely to get roughed up in poor neighborhoods by the cops. Yeah, this gets into an uncomfortable conversation about what it means to have a bias and what it means to, you know, to be a beat cop that knows this street and knows, you know, that 90% of the criminals in this place tend to look like this rather than that. 
and the wariness I sometimes have to come across as a backseat driver telling a cop exactly how he should or should not do his or her job. Um, but to your question, yeah, I think cops are sensitive to all of these distinctions, even subconsciously. They, they, you know, the moment you talk one way rather than another, they are picking up on that and adjusting their, you know, level of how much risk they detect accordingly. Uh, how you dress, just you know, the most subtle, most subtle sort of things about you is it's not just race but race is one of these factors but there's you know 10 or 15 others that are that are very much important you mentioned seeing people with signs calling to defund or abolish the police and that's becoming quite a rallying cry around the country what do you think is wrong with that idea well i think it's a misdiagnosis of the problem so for example if the problem were just all the cops are bad people then we could replace them with good people and we'd see all, all these problems go away. Uh, if you think that, there's a bridge in Brooklyn I would like to sell you. I think the problem is, is almost always a matter of a mixture of bad incentives and trade-offs inherent in the job itself. You know, whoever we nominate to, to get our violent criminals off the street, they're going to run into the problems that suspects resist arrest. They're going to run into the problems that they're going to succumb to the human temptation to lie about their own misbehavior to protect themselves. We're going to see most of these problems remain. So, you know, the whole idea of community policing seems like a misdiagnosis of the problem. Let's just look at what we have now and reform it in the ways that make the most sense. Coleman, I have a slightly different view on the, on the reducing funding for the police. I mean, if you're, if you're talking about abolishing the police force. That's, to me, beyond the realms of, of reason. But the idea of reducing funding for a very militarized police force, and at times an over-equipped police force, a privileged police force, compared to other public services, I can see some real reasons why that would be a good idea. Yeah, I would. I would agree with that. I think, you know, there's lots of departments around the nation that don't have the sort of military weaponry, and they seem to do okay. So it's, it's not clear to me why that was ever necessary to begin with. People mean different things when they say defund. Um, the Minneapolis City Council apparently already has a veto-proof majority in favor of, quote, dismantling the police. And it's it's vague what that means at this point. But yeah, the I'm definitely against replacing the police as an institution, but I can totally see how taking away funding for some unnecessarily military equipment would make sense. And and speaking of solutions or proposed solutions, what about um, a national ban on chokeholds? So I I would be lying if I said I had an opinion on that. Um, you know, one thing I'm very sensitive to is having this whole conversation without getting the cops' point of view. You know, imagine if we were having this whole conversation without any black people speaking. It would be unfathomable because almost inevitably we would be missing important facts and important perspectives on what's going on. Um, before I backseat drive with the cops, I would just want to get a reality check from a typical cop who tells me, well, actually, here are the five things you don't know about what it's like to be a policeman. 
And so I can be less ignorant when I when I'm proposing a reform like that. It's How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. And we're speaking with Coleman Hughes. Back in a moment. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Coleman, tell us a little bit about your personal journey. I know you grew up in New Jersey and... You recently said you, you you probably didn't you probably only knew one Republican you know while you were growing up, and then what happened? I suppose I was always a little bit of an independent thinker, always a little bit too quick to think I might be smarter than the teacher, um, a bit of a smartass in that way, which I think helped me. You know, it pushed me to try to develop my own opinions that weren't the same as everyone's around me. I want to ask um, a philosophy major question, because I too was a philosophy major, and Richard always always finds these, these can be uh, a little pretentious, but but indulge me. Um, <laughs> Jim, you're never pretentious. Oh, gosh, no. Immanuel Kant famously said that it was reading philosopher David Hume that first woke me from my dogmatic slumber. Uh, who played that role for you? Who are some of your intellectual heroes? I would say on the topic of race, John McWhorter, who's a Columbia linguist uh, and has written a few books on race. And he has a great essay collection called Authentically Black. And he made a lot of sense in those essays. I just kind of on a whim got his book from the school library because I went to Columbia as well and um, started reading it and I could, couldn't put it down. And it was, I think, expressing a lot of observations that I had had my, my whole life, but didn't realize one could say out loud, like the fact that uh, you know, many black people have a kind of inferiority complex and this expresses itself in behavior that is um, sort of, over-the-top expressive of pride, right? When, when a person wears the um, black is beautiful t-shirt, as, as some people did when I was growing up. The reason one wears that is, is because somewhere in some psyche, someone got the idea in your head that black wasn't beautiful. And, it, and you, you're wearing that shirt to guard against that feeling, to go more in the opposite direction 
But isn't that needed sometimes? Because blacks have been discriminated against. And there is this sense of, well, let's be positive. Let's express our pride in who we are. Yes, um, there's there's something very understandable about it. At the same time, when your pride becomes tied up in your identity, the temptation becomes irresistible to lie about any fact that doesn't paint your group in a positive light. And then we lose touch with enormous issues. You know, for one thing, we've mostly lost touch in mainstream discussion of the central problem of crime in inner city black neighborhoods and violent crime in particular. Homicide is the number one cause of death for black men in their 20s. Uh, and that's that's very rarely talked about because the perpetrators are almost entirely other black men. And when you have this kind of race pride, the temptation becomes irresistible to blame any problem on the other. When we can't say two things at once, when we can't condemn police racism, but also highlight the central and primary problem of you know, homicides and violent crimes, but it's so uncomfortable and impossible to talk about that issue for most people. And often it feels like the people talking about it are doing so in bad faith, um, that it, it's just a very difficult issue to get one's head around and be comfortable talking about. Uh, and that's a problem because at some level conversation is all we have. And I worry that people have become so obsessed with uh, ra white racism being the cause of everything that when you have problems that don't squarely fit that, but that still cause immense amounts of suffering, that we fail to organize around them in, in a way that we, that we could if we thought differently about these issues. You know, there, there's an organization called Mothers Against Senseless Killings that was started by a, you know, a, a black woman in Chicago. Nobody's ever heard of it. We, we can't talk about it because it's so uncomfortable. And I completely get why it's uncomfortable. But, you know, if, if we are just going to live in what's comfortable, then you, you might as well not think at all. How has the conversation been impacted by President Trump's use of bigotry and prejudice and also his comments that we should send the military into the streets to deal with protests? Virtually everything that comes out of Trump's mouth makes everything worse. It's, it's almost as if he is trying to say the thing that is going to piss off protesters or black people or white liberals the most. And he's kind of like playing a game that seems to actually work pretty well for him. Um, and in that sense, he is very different than Obama, very different than George Bush. On the other hand, I think people probably focus too much on the president in general. A lot of times we're letting the local and the county slip away in our obsession about the national leader. In this case, I think um, obviously you know, the shooter looter comment, which he tried to pathetically backpedal, uh, definitely had an effect, the effect of inflaming the protesting probably at the margin. But I don't think Trump has caused the protest with his rhetoric. We had 
riots in 2014 and 15 under Obama, and we haven't had riots, major riots for three years under Trump. I think it's more of the COVID factor. I think people are at home, they're restless, they're unemployed, um, they're watching too much news. And to me, that created the condition for national and ultimately global protests. Everything Trump has done is just, you know, ratcheted up a bit at the margin. There is a movement today that you've been involved in pushing back against that says that the the legacy of slavery and and Jim Crow is so pervasive that we need some kind of restitution, some kind of reparations. And you testified in, in Congress against that idea. I'm a descendant of slaves. My sister, descendant of American slaves. We saw the names of our ancestors in the wills because our grandparents keep keep very close records of our ancestors who were on Monticello, Jefferson's plantation. So I, I was raised thinking about all of that, but it never occurred to me that I was entitled to something on the basis of suffering that happened, uh, frankly, a very long time ago. Um, you know, if, if you're talking about reparations as a check, then Give me the dollar value of reparations to 40 million black Americans in check form. And I think the three of us could come up with 20 better ways to spend that money to help black people rather than simply handing out a check with slavery in the memo line. Well, that invites a question, and that is because we're a show about solutions and our interview is almost over. Um, uh, what are some things that you think would help improve the lives of black Americans? Well, I will say I always shy away from the idea of a solution because I think no society has ever really solved the problem ever, except for maybe a few diseases that we've completely eradicated. If you're talking about the social problems of crime, poverty, incarceration, the most you can do is lessen and mitigate and get better and make progress. You never get to the, to the end, which is what solution implies. However, I think there are absolutely things we can do. If you're talking about policing, I already mentioned universal body cams. To me, it seems like an absolute no-brainer. Um, I like the idea of getting rid of, get, getting rid of militarized police. I, I'm open to the idea of ending qualified immunity, um, or, or at least changing it to make it a bit easier to bring civil rights lawsuits against officers. Um, if you're talking about the prison system, for the vast majority of crimes, America has much, a much longer average sentences than its European counterparts. And criminologists have known since literally the 18th century that making a sentence longer doesn't deter crime more. What deters crime is the uh, probability of any punishment. So if you have these neighborhoods where, you know, in some of the worst neighborhoods in Chicago, for example, over 90% of murders are going unprosecuted. Doesn't matter how long the sentence for those murders are, you're not going to deter them if most of them are going unsolved. And I think we, we probably ought to recalibrate the casualness with which we send someone to prison for five years, right? I'm not sure it actually helps. I'm not sure it's necessary. Um, so I think we could probably, you know, cut all of our sentences. We could decriminalize or legalize drugs. 
uh, at least the vast majority of them. Uh, I, I'm a fan of charter schools and school choice. Um, a lot of charter schools are, you know, are mediocre, especially ones in the suburbs. But it does seem like in quite a few American cities, charter schools have certain charter schools have been able to do better than public schools teaching the same kids. So I, I find that to be also a no brainer in terms of allowing that to happen, especially when you see the list of, you know, black inner city kids trying to get into some of these schools is thousands long. You know, I, I think a huge one is reducing the rate of violent crime. If crime is high, lecture as you may, people will move out. Black, white, middle-class black people will move out just like they did in Detroit and Newark in the late 60s. White people will move out and all that will be left are the poorest of the poor. And effective crime fighting without becoming enamored with these old ideas of tough on crime and longer sentences and whatnot, which we know don't work. Um, that That's an extremely important part of improving the, the neighborhoods that are most blighted. Coleman, you were recently interviewed in Interview Magazine, which I thought was kind of neat. Um, and at the end, you said you were asked about whether you're optimistic and you said, things are not looking great, but the time for total despair has not yet arrived. Uh, do you still feel that way? I suppose that was about COVID specifically, and I still feel that way about COVID, I think. But yeah, I, I'm less... I'm less optimistic about the uh, the future of race relations and rioting for a few reasons. One is that, you know, we're, we're tempted to sort of compare ourselves to a country like Britain or Canada and say, you know, they have very few police shootings. Why can't we just institute the reforms they have? Uh, and I wish that I could think that was a good line of thinking, but the more I think about it, the more I realize how uniquely tough the American situation is. When the cops pull someone over in Britain, where the rate of gun ownership is less than 5% what it is here, that is an incredible disparity. What it means is they pull someone over in London, they have almost no reason to fear, fear that the suspect has a gun in their glove compartment uh, and is about to whip it out on the pretext of it being a wallet or a smartphone. In America, the police simply do fear that. A cop gets shot just about every day in this country. And that's not true in the UK. And I fear that American police, no matter how well trained, will always be more likely to mistake the wallet for a gun, uh, mistake the smartphone for a gun, because they're policing in a gun country. Um, so I think about that. I think about the fact that everyone has a smartphone now, which means that, which is, to be clear, is a, is a good thing. It means that police can no longer routinely get away with lying uh to to hide their misconduct because we we got you on tape uh but it also means that if we cut the rate by of unarmed people who get shot by 95 percent or more but the remaining three or four percent are filmed the the only thing the public will care about is is the videos they won't see they won't see the massive progress and the feeling that there is still this problem of racist violence that has persisted and hasn't has hardly gotten any better if it's gotten better at all that's the that's the feeling that produces riots 
and destroys, you know, businesses and neighborhoods and which many cities don't recover from in a matter of years or even decades. So I'm worried that even if we do all the right things, we will still be left with a widespread perception that will reliably produce riots. Coleman Hughes, thanks very much for joining us on How Do We Fix It? My pleasure. Richard, it's that time in the show when we offer our recommendations to our listeners. And I think you've got one this week. Yes, the fulcrum. Um, We've had David Myers of the fulcrum on our show in the past. And they've been doing some very good work around uh, the dysfunction in our democracy. They're a digital news organization that is looking at a bunch of different issues, including redistricting, voting rights, gerrymandering. This past week, they had a very interesting uh, webinar uh, devoted to the concerns about our electoral system, uh, especially with November coming up. And uh, this was actually on the day that Georgia voted in its very dysfunctional uh, primary election with new voting machines. Yeah, that Georgia thing sounds like it was a real debacle. This is such an important issue. And and as far as I can see, the more I learn about this, the more I think we want to keep any kind of computerized system out of our voting process as much as possible. So I've been looking at the fulcrum a lot lately. This is a very emotional time. The protests and the anger in the streets are by far the largest demonstrations over civil rights in 50 years. And in the words of Sherilyn Eiffel, the president of the NAACP Legal Fund, black people are in mourning. They are tired. They are angry, she said. They're upset and they are hurting. And I raise that because we had a calm conversation in a time that may actually call for emotion in line with the suffering and pain that a lot of people are going through. And I'm not sure that we spoke to the passion of that moment in our interview. That's a good point. I mean, there is a uh, there is so much emotion and passion out in the world but what is the point of a podcast, Richard? I, I mean, I think that people can and do and, and should go out and be together and be heard and be seen expressing their viewpoints about vital issues. But what is the point of getting together around a couple of microphones and talking to a smart person with a different perspective? There, I think that the cooler, perhaps even more clinical approach has its value. Coleman said one thing that I thought was really interesting. And and that was that if you're going to be an activist, your first responsibility is to educate yourself and, you know, and to make sure that the things you're advocating actually work are going to address the problem. And I, throughout my life, when I've seen people get extremely passionate about issues, that can be a great driver for change, but it can also mean less care is taken in how the solution is crafted. Remember in the 90s, everyone in late 80s, everyone was concerned about crime. I lived in New York in the, you know, during part of that era and crime was terrible. Everyone was really concerned about it. And what did they do? They crafted a really big crime bill that was going to take care of this problem, put 100,000 more cops on the street, put these super predators in jail. It was a bipartisan 
campaigns enthusiastically supported by Republicans and Democrats, notably uh, Joe Biden. Was it a good law? You know, it was a mixed bag. But I think today most people see it as an extremely problematic piece of legislation. So I'm here to argue against passion. I think we need to understand the passion of any moment when we're looking at how to fix things, because it's only in response to, to passion and to anger and to emotion that, that things often can get done. Right now, this crisis has the attention of the world. And that's largely because of, of the protests in the streets and, and the raw anger. But I think giving it a nod and, and, and being aware of it is, is important. And Coleman was not denying the presence of racism by police, especially in the treatment of, of poor people, poor people of color, nor was he denying the decades of housing discrimination or uh, the, the crisis of coronavirus that's affecting uh, poor neighborhoods. So many people just believe that we, we can do a lot better than we have done. This is How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. And we're a production of Davies Content, and we make podcasts for companies and nonprofits. Miranda Schaefer is our producer, and thanks for listening. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.